and listening to this series. Um, I hope it's been encouraging. If you missed a week, they're on the sermon archive. You can go back and listen to them. By way of recapping, we started by addressing the question, well, what is language? What are words? And we answered the question, the God who is, is a talking God. The God who is, wants to be known. He made man in his image, and he spoke to him. And so words are God's chosen means of communication to us. Even the Son, who is the supreme communication, is himself the Word. And we come to know him through these words. Language mediates to us the knowledge of God. And in week two, we asked, well, why the Bible? Why not the Koran, the Book of Mormon? And we, we looked at the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the testimony of Jesus Christ and the testimony of the Bible itself, the testimony of fulfilled prophecy and archaeology. Then, um, taking the Bible on its own terms, Jeb Brewer examined what does the Bible say for itself? If it is the Word of God, what is the Bible's view of its own accuracy? And we, we saw with stunning clarity that the Bible calls itself the very Word of God, calls itself without error, perfect, we saw that that's how Jesus and his apostles view it. God has not stuttered. The following week, we said, okay, if that's how deep and how high, how wide? To what areas of life does the Bible cover? And we saw that the scripture claims its total sufficiency. Not for everything, but for all areas that pertain to life and godliness. Every issue of morality, for every good work. The scriptures claim their sufficiency. God has given us truth for all areas of life that have issues of morality, godliness, and life to them. And then last week, we addressed the question, how does one understand the Bible? Today more than ever, people are challenging, that's just your interpretation. Is, is it arrogant or foolish to think that we could understand what words mean with any real certainty? And we saw, yes, absolutely, the Bible expects itself to be understood. It doesn't mean there are not challenging parts. It doesn't mean we should not be humble open to critique, but it is not wrong to hope to, and it's not arrogant to think you have understood portions of the Bible. God has not stuttered. He has left us a sure word. And in our final week, I'll address the question, so what? So if all this is true, you're persuaded by what you've heard, so what? How should that affect the life of the believer? And so if you'll look at your insert, we're going to look at just in three points with our brief time this morning. And the, we're going to look at three passages. I have three points, three passages. They're printed on the back of the insert. You can follow along in your own Bible. You can follow along on the back of the insert. Because if these things are true, and they are, then there must needs be a radical effect in our own life. There must be an effect in our own life. And so we're going to take our three points. First, to cultivate your appetite for the word. Cultivate your appetite for the word. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible assumes, and we'll see in just a moment in 1 Peter 2, that those who genuinely know God, those who have come to faith in the risen Lord, those who are born again, will have a natural desire for God's word. See, I don't want this to be some law, some rule. Rather, it's an appetite. It's a desire. Here, open your Bibles or follow along on the back of the insert. We'll look at our first passage. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. 
First Peter 2, 1 to 3. The apostle writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So here's Peter. We've got a classic put off, put on. Stop doing one thing. Start doing another. And here it's all about an appetite for the word. It's all about an appetite for the word. The, the analogy he uses is, is startling. Like newborn babes. Now it just so happens the kid or household has one of these. <laughs> and I am very well aware due to the waking up every two to four hours throughout the night, how often newborn babes desire milk. If, if, if Zadok just had one big good meal on Sunday morning, and maybe a, maybe a, maybe a snack on Wednesday night, he, he would not be a very healthy baby. He would not last long. Um, and so the apostle tells us, like newborn babes eagerly desire this milk. And, and that's what I want to get back to the point. It'd be so easy to simply hear from this, read your Bible. And in part, that's, that's part of this point, read your Bible. But we can read our Bible as a law, as an obligation, or worse yet, as some meritorious act. God will bless me today, I've read his word, check. What really matters is the heart. In fact, next to this first point, you can just write heart. God wants your heart and your appetites for his word. That's what he wants. And if you think maybe Peter is overstating it, that this is hyperbole, surely not like newborn babies, that's crazy, I want you to consider a few passages. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 48. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Psalm 119, verse 164. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. That's, that sounds to me an awful lot like the newborn baby schedule. And again, I'm not trying to make some new law where quick everyone gets out of here and they set their alarm clocks for every three hours. But it's certainly more than once a week, twice a week. And it's this feeding on. And it's got to be eager. And, and that's God's desire for growing Christians. This is how, he says, we grow up into our salvation. How we mature. How we grow. How we press on. See, there aren't two types of Christians. Those who hunger and love God's word and those who don't. Um, there's those who are growing and maturing and those who aren't. And one of the means of that is through cultivating an appetite for God's word. And Peter considers two possible reasons why this may not be the case. And so if you're sitting here today and, you, and you're hearing this and you're saying, Jeremy, that sounds great. You know, I wish God could zap me and give me that hunger. Then there's two possibilities that Peter considers for why that is not the case. The first, point B, is that sin will ruin your appetite. Sin will ruin your appetite. Notice before he gives the what to do, it tells you what to stop doing. Before the put on is the put off. And the implication, every time the Bible does this, stop doing this, start doing that, is that they're in conflict with one another. You can't do this until you put off that. And so the implication is the sins that he lists in verse 1 
are going to clog the appetite for the command in verse 2. So he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If you're a Christian today and you don't find that you have a hunger and a desire for the word, if maybe you did one time when you're a new believer, but now other things are catching your eye, other things are catching your zeal, then perhaps there's some areas in your life that, you know, you're, you're not really fighting sin in. Maybe there are some areas you've made compromises in. Maybe there's some areas where, um, quite frankly, you've given yourself some leeway, and perhaps one of the reasons you're not eagerly going to the light of the word is you don't want to be exposed. So you keep a safe distance to guard your pet sins, to guard your pet compromises. Um, and so, make no mistake, this, this is how we grow. There aren't those Christians who love reading their Bibles and those who don't. There are those who are growing and there are those who are either dealing with sin or sadly not dealing with sin or point C may not be saved at all. Notice verse 3, he gives another option for why this appetite may not be present. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And again, this isn't a law. Peter's not beating them over the head. Seven times a day, you need to read your Bible. Rather, he's assuming if you had one taste of the Lord in the gospel, you're going to want more. If you've had a taste of God's word, and it's been sweet to your mouth, and life to your bones, and light to your eyes, you're going to want more. And, and, and maybe one of the reasons why you don't want more is you've got some sin clogging your appetite, like eating a bunch of junk food before a grand meal. Maybe the other reason you're not hungering for it is you've never tasted to begin with. And so it's, it's never a bad thing to check. I know we're in a room full of people professing to be followers of Jesus Christ, but it's, it's always a good thing to check. Have you tasted? Have you tasted the gospel? Have you turned from your sins to Jesus Christ? Have you come to realize your need of grace? Your inability to stand before God on your own merit? Have you realized that the scales will not balance in your favor when you stand in God's law court? Have you seen the Messiah that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the sinless life you could not live, kept God's law in all ways and all points? died on a cross for your sin, rose again on the third day, and have you trusted in him by faith? Have you tasted of the Lord that he's good? And it's never, it's never appropriate to just assume that, especially if your current experience is one of not really having much of an appetite for the word. Now, if you, if you desire God's word, be encouraged. You're growing and, and if you find that maybe there was a day where you loved reading the Bible, maybe there's a day where you were eager to see what God's word said, but nowadays that's not so much the case, I'd encourage you to consider one of these two options. There, there aren't two types, maybe a better way of saying it is, there's only one type of healthy growing Christian, and that's a Christian who has an appetite for God's word. A person who does not have an appetite for God's word has either got sin clogging their appetite or may not know God at all. So that's the first point, cultivate an appetite. How do you do that? Well, practically, you, you, you come before God. If, if you're sitting here today and your appetite isn't strong, you really hunger for other things, admit that to God. You're not going to fool him. And ask for his grace. Ask him like David did in Psalm 51 to change your heart. 
Ask him like the psalmist to, to align and incline his heart. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, incline my heart to your testimonies, O God. And then trust that God has answered your prayer and begin to read Set patterns. I mean, there is a place for spiritual disciplines and just making yourself get up early and making yourself read. We can do it legalistically as if to earn merit. We can do it in faith saying, okay, I've asked God to change my heart. I've asked God to change my attitude and my desires. And now I'm going to get up tomorrow morning trusting that he's going to give that grace, trusting that he is going to change my heart. And you can step out in faith and obedience. They're two very different things. I've met plenty of Christians who do the box checking thing. Got up, read my Bible, check. I don't know if that's going to profit anybody because what God's after is this appetite. If you're just making yourself do it constantly, I don't know if that's terribly useful. But what God's after is our desires, our affections, our hearts. Cultivate an appetite for God's word. You remember the parable of the, uh, the sower and, and the warning about the, this, the word, the seeds, the word of God, the seed that got thrown and sown among the thorns. Jesus says in Luke 8, as for that which fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So there's a danger. This world has a ton of things to get you excited about. A ton of things to... to to whet your appetite for other things. And it's dangerous. We've got to guard our hearts. We've, we've got to take care of our hearts. Um, that we don't lose our appetite for God's word and get an appetite for other things. There's so many things this world has. Sports, mo- you, you should have seen the kid or household towards the end of Downton Abbey. You're sort of sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for the next episode to come out. If, if you don't know what it is, don't watch it. It's addictive. But... Um, but the same thing can happen with sports or music or other things where we get an appetite, we taste it, we like it, and we want the next bit. And that's what God is expecting and calling us to in his word. That's the standard. That's the target to aim for. And, and if that's not where you're at, call out on God to give you grace, to change your heart, to change your affections. And consider the possibility, do I know the living God? Have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Second point. After we cultivate an appetite mature in your feeding on the word mature in your feeding on the word and here we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5 Hebrews chapter 5 which of course settles the issue of who makes coffee Hebrews okay oh dear Hebrews chapter 5 and and if you talk to Dave Lample, you talk to um, Zeb Carpenter, Hebrews is one of the more challenging books in the New Testament. It really is. It's complicated. The argumentation is deep. The author is aware of this. He goes on an extended two-chapter discourse on Melchizedek. Character shows up twice in the Bible, briefly, in Genesis and Psalm 110. And pausing as he's talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, he says to his Christian readers this in verses 11 through 14. About this, Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, the, the, the aspect of this writing is an admonition, it's a rebuke to the reader. But from it, I think we can build a contrast, a profile of maturity and immaturity. And so I don't read this saying that this rebuke applies to us necessarily, but rather from it, we can get two pictures of the characteristics, the hallmarks of maturity, and the characteristics and the hallmarks of immaturity. You remember in our first point, we're supposed to grow in our salvation. So as we feed on the word, we're growing in our salvation. What does that growth look like? Hebrews 5 gives us a very clear picture with a series of five contrasts. The first, dull of hearing versus eager and attentive. Dull of hearing versus eager and attentive. The, the author is afraid that they aren't going to pay attention. They're not going to follow him. He's moving on into a meatier topic, a deeper theological issue, and he's concerned that his readers aren't going to track with him. Perhaps they'll get bored. Perhaps they'll just close the book and put it down. They've become dull of hearing. Um, we all know what this is like. You're sitting in class in college or something, and you just the teacher's sort of droning on and on, and you just sort of doze, you know, doze off, daydream, you're dull of hearing. I think conversely, is that sort of eager and attentive. You know, your, your favorite team is just up by a point or two and it's the end and you're sitting on the edge of your seats waiting to see how it plays out. It's the summer blockbuster movie that you've been waiting for for a year and a half and you, you get there early and you get the best seats and you watch the previews and you're holding on to the railing and you're attentive. Dull of hearing versus eager and attentive. And again, this isn't necessarily yes or no, but these are characteristics. And so as you look at yourself, maybe there's some areas in this contrast you're very mature, and maybe there's some areas you need to grow in. I just want to help set the target. What does it look like to mature as a Christian? What does it look like to grow up in your salvation? Well, through maturing and your feeding on the Word, you're going to grow more eager and attentive. You're going to grow more eager and attentive in, in instruction and in what God's Word has to say. Second contrast, the readers, the uh, author of Hebrews is writing to, need, again, basic instruction versus being teachers of others. And we don't know how long the church had been there, but it can't have been there terribly long. This is a first-generational church. And the author of Hebrews expects that Christians who've been Christians for a few years should be in a position where they can teach others, at least the basic oracles of God. If you go a little further into chapter 6, we get an idea of what some of these basic teachings are. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's the author of Hebrews' list of basic doctrines. Washings probably relating to baptism. What we're dealing with is faith, repentance, judgment, baptism. We're dealing with gospel issues and those immediately following the gospel. Conversion issues. He's not expecting that every believer at the Hebrew the church um, in Jerusalem is going to be teaching systematic theology, but he does expect that after a couple of years, you should be able to unpack the gospel pretty clearly. You should be able to explain to a new believer what it means that Jesus is your righteousness, what it means that there's judgment coming, 
why it is that we're baptized. And, and that's the assumption he's making. And, and sadly, these Christians aren't in a position to, to teach anybody that. They really need to be taught again. And again, this assumption that we all should be teaching. If you remember back when we were going through 1 Timothy, and I argued that there was not a single qualification for an elder that was not elsewhere commanded of all believers, that includes teaching. Here's one example. All believers are expected to be able to, if necessary, teach. Maybe not formally in a classroom, an ABF or a pulpit, but to be able to communicate God's word to others, to explain what God has said. If you're, if, if you're a parent, God has called you to teach. If you're married, God has called you to teach. If you have friends, God has called you to teach. In fact, in Colossians 3.16, and listen to the connection between the word, because that's what we're getting here, the word and maturing. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What are the characteristic traits? What is the fruit of a life where the word of Christ dwells richly? That life begins teaching and admonishing and singing and giving thanks to God. This is for all believers, not just a select few. All believers. And so, are you maturing? How, how comfortable do you feel explaining these things if, if some new believer, if some unsaved friend had a question? Would you feel confident laying out the gospel, sort of unpacking it, have a conversation on these things? That's a sign of maturity. Next, see, the immature can only drink milk, whereas the maturing can handle meat and milk. And by milk, he just means shallow or basic Bible teachings. Now, all of God's truth is beautiful. I don't want to set the milk against the meat. The point is a healthy diet does both. A healthy diet is diving deep at times into God's word, dealing with deeper things. And a healthy diet is, is drinking in gospel truth, pure or simple gospel truth. It's not that we set aside the milk in favor of the meat, but a healthy diet eats both, partakes of both. My baby boy's at it can't handle a steak right now. One day, hopefully, he will. But if you meet an adult whose digestive system is only able to handle milk, something is terribly wrong. Something is terribly wrong. And so, it's not that every day and twice on Sundays we need to study and dive into Melchizedek, but a maturing believer has the ability to do that from time to time. The ability to, to gird up the loins of their mind and focus and think hard about some deeper things. That's a sign of maturity. Next, we see that the immature are unskilled with the word. They're not familiar with their Bibles. They just, they just don't know it very well. Versus familiarity and skill. He says to them that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And again, as you read your Bible more and more, as you read it over and over, year by year, hopefully you're growing in familiarity. You know, in the same way that your favorite record that you listen to over and over again, you know everything that's coming. Your, fav your favorite movie that you watch over and over again, you can quote extensively. It just starts to happen. You know, no one sets out to memorize big sections of The Princess Bride. It just happens, right? Um, at least it did to my wife. Because the things you love and the things you repeatedly view and see, you just start to ingest and they start to become part of you. And you, you walk away and you can say, you know, I don't think that means what you think it means. And people track with you. That's a Princess Bride quote, I'm sorry. Um, 
Okay, that's, thank you for the charity laugh. Um, but it just happens, right? You start finding yourself humming along the song lyrics. You know them. You didn't sit down intending to memorize the song. You just listen to it. You enjoy it. You have an appetite for it. And familiarity brings a knowledge of the subject. And the same thing happens with the God's word. If you start with an appetite as a baby and you eat and you eat and you feed and then as you mature in your feeding you, you grow in skill with the word. You know your Bible. And certainly going to Bible school, going to seminary, going to tough men classes, staying for ABF, that can help. But this is just the assumed result of someone who's been a Christian for more than two or three years. And it's something we're growing in. Something we're growing in. We want to, like Timothy, obey Paul's instruction in 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That should be all of our goals, to rightly handle the word of truth. Um, one of the big differences between um, our understanding of the church and, say, others is that each and every one of us is a priest. Each and every one of us stands before God. I, I'm not the magic answer guy. And, and you can't just take my word on what I say the Bible means. That's why I spend so much time trying to show you what it means because you stand before God based on your treatment of his word. And myself and the other elders, we're here to help, to, to teach, and to show what the Bible means. But at the end of the day, God requires all of us to be studying and growing in the knowledge of his word. Um, and so, growing in familiarity and skill. And what this leads to, and really the hallmark of maturity then, and the hallmark of immaturity, is undiscerning and trained in practice. Notice that last verse. Solid food, he says in verse 14, is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, a result of somebody who's reading this over and over and feeding on this over and over, over years, their ears perk up, they become attentive. They actually are able now to teach foundational doctrines to others. They're moving on from milk to meat. They're growing in their skill of the word. And what they start doing then, as they become more and more familiar with the word, is they start to examine all of life through the word. It's like they look through the lens of scripture at life and they start to size things up. What does God say about that? What does God say about that? What does God's word say about that? And they start to discern and they grow in maturity and wisdom. But it's through practice. Notice that. Through a constant practice. Through training to distinguish good from evil. And sadly, there are tons of Christians who walk into things that they should have seen a mile away were bad news because they lack maturity. It gets back to the basic problem of the Christian who says what's wrong with it demonstrates immaturity. What's wrong with it is the wrong question. What we should be asking is what's right with it? What's good about it? We should be mature in, in separating what is good from what is bad. This echoes back to Solomon's prayer to God. Do you remember King Solomon? The Lord told him he would grant any request that he had, and Solomon prayed, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? With Solomon's request, I need to know how to separate good from evil. And what, what's happening here is with Scripture, we can all be as wise as Solomon. With scripture, you can grow in your maturity so that you too, so that I can discern with God's grace and his revelation good from evil. 
And not just the basic good from evils that are obvious, like murder's bad, but the more subtle aspects of life. Making wise choices on what you watch on TV, what you read, friendships you have, separating good from evil, growing in wisdom and discernment. This is the hallmark of maturity. Which brings us to this point here. Those who are maturing do so by growing in their knowledge of the word and by training themselves to evaluate all things by it. That's really the hallmark of maturity. That's that's what this is all moving towards. This familiarity with the word. This appetite for the word. This attentiveness to the word is is making us word focused. We're looking at life through the grid of the word. We're always thinking, what does God say about this as we evaluate a choice that we come to? It's a sign of maturity. And again, the point here isn't to try to make anyone feel bad, but rather, this is the goal. This is what you should be praying towards. This is what you should pray that God would give you a desire for. And then start to act on that. And the way to do that, we've seen, is through growing in familiarity with the word. By, by making yourself learning to become more attentive. Um, we, we train our children in an attempt to help them to sit still in church. I'll sit them on my lap most nights and read a book to them. It's quiet sit time. And what we're training them to do is to sit still, to focus. It starts at maybe two minutes. And after a couple weeks, five, 10, 15, 20, with a goal that eventually they can sit through a church service. And different kids are, you know, different kids can do it at different paces. Um, but we're trying to train them to be able to pay attention and focus and sit still. And it takes training. It takes work. Well, the same thing can happen if you find it hard to, to, to follow along or pay attention to the Bible. Just start stretching, training, working those mental muscles by God's grace prayerfully. This is about a direction that we're headed in, not some standard you have to meet. But the direction God wants us to head in is maturity with an appetite for his word, with a hunger for his word. Which brings us now... So if the first point is about the heart, the second point, you can write the word mind next to it. You're thinking, you're discerning. And the third point, you can write mouth next to it. Learn to speak the word in love. So first God wants your heart, then he wants your mind. Now we're going to see he wants your mouth. He wants the words for you to speak. And this is in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, a passage that if you've been coming for a while, you know I go back to again and again and again, because it's just the most beautiful picture of the church working properly, of what Christ would have us do and be as his body. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Jesus, as he ascended, he gave out spiritual gifts. He equipped his church with grace through his Holy Spirit, and we read, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why, why do they give those? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, footnote that. We'll come back to what is the work of the ministry. He'll, he'll tell us that a little later. This work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's, there's the put-off. There's what we're not to do. Okay, what are we to do with these leaders that God's given? But rather, speaking the truth in love. 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow that it, so that it builds itself up in love. Now, notice that. Twice he says what the purpose of this ministry is. It's the building up of the body of Christ. At the end, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And back in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So that's the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is built up as we preach the gospel, and more and more people become part of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is built up as those who are Jesus' sheep are taught, encouraged, instructed, exhorted with God's word. And it all hinges around verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. It's so simple, so profound, and so important. What, what is evangelism other than speaking the truth in love to the lost? Right? That's, that's evangelism. Speaking the truth in love to the lost. In, in Acts 50.20, angel appeared to the apostles who had been arrested, released them, and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. It's speaking the truth in love. That's evangelism. Right? It's just speaking what God has said, putting it in intelligible speech, incarnating it with love, compassion. You speak the truth to your neighbor. And this is how true church growth happens. It's not just speaking the truth in love in evangelism, but it's speaking the truth in love to each other as we encourage each other day by day, as we exhort one another. As when necessary, we come along someone struggling with sin and we exhort and maybe rebuke somebody. As we walk along, the vast majority of our ministry to each other is through words. I mean, yes, we need acts of love and kindness. We need those people to help us move, to help us um, with physical projects. But the overwhelming majority of the things you and I do that have any eternal consequence will involve words. It's what I say to my kids. It's also how I live my life. It's what I say to them. So I say, the words I speak to my wife. We've talked in previous weeks about the power of words. And really, and I want you to get this, point C here. This is the end game of church life on earth. This is the end game. Um, a few years back, we did an ABF through a book called The Trellis and the Vine. I really, really appreciated that book and recommend it. If, if you've got a copy, you haven't read it, go reread it. But the, the author makes a statement at the end of chapter 3 where he says, separating trellis from vine. And, and the way the metaphor works is this. If you think of a vine and a trellis, the trellis is a support structure to hold the vine up so that it grows. But the vine is what matters. And he's equating lots of church programs and structures as trellis Necessary to hold up the vine, which is real church growth in life. And he's trying to identify, okay, what is the vine then? And in this book, the author writes, and I think he's dead right, it's believers in love, taking part of God's word, either quoting it or putting it in their own words, and speaking it to another person in love, relying on God's grace. He says, that is vine work. Everything else is trellis. That means is to a certain extent, this sermon, even right now, is only useful, ultimately, so far as it results in all of us 
being more equipped, more encouraged, and more able to speak the truth and love to other people. The sermon isn't the end in itself. The worship service is not the end in itself. But us speaking the truth and love to our neighbor in evangelism, us speaking the truth and love to God in worship, the early church in Acts 4 worships God, they start quoting scripture, quoting Psalm 2, and us speaking the truth and love to each other. That's the end game of the church. That's, that's what Ephesians 4 defines as maturity. And notice how every part's critical here. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, not just five or six key people, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that that's, that's when the church is going to grow, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, that, there it is. It's beautiful. This gets my heart going. This is my passion that we would, that God would use me to help encourage you, that we would encourage each other to do this, to speak the truth in love, to our neighbor in evangelism, to ourselves is edification, and to God is worship. So, so as we close this series in the Bible, what do we do with the Bible? Cultivate an appetite for it. Start there. Because if you skip over that, you'll become a legalist, or you'll become discouraged. Because you're just trying to make yourself read the Bible. And either you'll succeed and become self-righteous, or you will fail and become discouraged. Ask God for the appetite. Taste and see the Lord is good. And then, do the hard spiritual discipline work of trusting God will give the grace. Secondly, mature in your feeding. Move on to deeper things. Don't just drink milk. Mature. Become discerning. And finally, this has got to lead to the words we speak to each other, to our neighbor, to God. As we become a people of the word. You know, Colossians 3.16 again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. There's that inreach. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, upreach to God, with thankfulness to God in our hearts. You know, our, our church focus, our church sort of purpose is simplified down to Upreach, inreach, outreach. And the word of God should govern and inform and fuel all three of those things. This is God's desire for us. And the good news is, he'll give us the grace to do it. Whatever he calls us to do, he will equip us to do. So, so this morning, I'm not calling you necessarily to do anything other than to call upon God for his grace. Other than perhaps to change the target your life is aiming for ever so slightly. To maybe make a new goal, a new ambition, and call upon God to give his grace, and he will. And then take steps of faith. This is God's desire for us. This is why he has given us his word. And he will, he will accomplish his purpose with it. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your truth. Oh, Lord, let us not presume upon your grace. Give us hearts that hunger and thirst for your word. Lord, like those newborn babes, eager, attentive, and help us to grow and mature in discernment and wisdom and knowledge and skill with the word. And Lord, let us be your people who speak your word to each other, to our unbelieving neighbors, to you in prayer and praise, Lord. Let your word govern our thoughts, our actions, 
in the words of our mouth. Lord God, so that you would receive the glory and that we would receive the joy and the growth. In Jesus' name, amen.